Two weeks ago, we saw from Isaiah 25 through 27 that God delivers His repentant people. And today we're going to start this longer section that includes woes or announcements of God's judgment on various groups of people. God warns them about false hopes. First, He warns against trusting their wicked leaders in Isaiah 28 and 29. And then He warns against trusting unfaithful allies, particularly Egypt. And then as we come closer to the end of the section that ends probably with chapter 35, God offers hope that after judgment, he will be the leader and the ally that his people had needed all along. So we're going to begin with these first two chapters, Isaiah 28 and 29, that have warnings against Ephraim, standing for Israel, and then Judah, and then specifically the city of Jerusalem. What is the point of this first set of warnings? I think it is this, God is your crown and cornerstone. God is your crown and cornerstone. And then the application is, toward the end of this section, so sanctify him and listen to him. First of all, I think we see that God is a true crown when man's crown falls off, when it's cast down, in chapter 28, verses 1 through 13. We see a contrast between the proud crown of drunkards, verse 1, and verse 4, and the beautiful crown of God in verse 5, the diadem in verse 5. We see, first of all, that proud drunkards are going to lose their authority. These are those who are the rulers of the people of Israel, and they should be ruling well, but instead they are ruled by drunkenness. Uh, I think it's interesting to note that m- most of the admonitions against alcohol and strong drink and all those sorts of things in the Old Testament are directed towards those who are in positions of leadership. Uh, particularly when it comes to a book like Proverbs. So when it says in Proverbs, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine. Why? Because if someone is moved toward drunkenness, what are they not going to do well? They're not going to accomplish justice. And then it says, but for the one who is sorrowful, there is a place for it. Well, why this seemingly double standard Because the person who is sorrowful and in mourning and all that in their situation in Proverbs 30 is not necessarily the king or the official or the judge who is making an important decision who is going to be swayed to make a foolish decision by being influenced by those things. The reason that I point that out is because if that is the case, and it seems to be in Proverbs 30, then it is a particularly reprehensible thing for these leaders of Israel to be stumbling around in drunkenness instead of leading the people well. And that is what God is condemning them for. And not just the fact of their drunkenness, which is more of a symptom, but of their pride. They have this picture in their minds of, look at me, I'm in charge, I have this authority and majesty and should be respected and they're doing it while stumbling around in drunkenness. What is God's response to that? Verse 2, He's going to bring something like a storm of hail, of mighty waters, and He casts down to the earth with His hand. Their authority, their leadership, their security, He casts them down. Their proud crown, verse 3, is trodden underfoot. And then verse 4, the fading flower of its glorious beauty. So there's this sort of this idea of what you think is going to last, but is only briefly. Uh, There's a tree in my front yard. It bloomed for about two, maybe three weeks of the whole year. That's all the longer that its bloom season lasted. And so, and you see it at the beginning, you think, wow, this is amazing. How long will it last? If there is a strong rainstorm, it might only be even a few days, right? And so from their perspective... Their rule and their reign is going to endure, and it's this majestic thing. And God says, no, this is temporary, and this is going to be taken away because of their selfish leadership, their perversion of justice. He gives the illustration at the end of verse 4 that it's like the first ripe fig before summer. You see the fruit, you pick it, you eat it, it's gone. They think they're very secure. God says, no, you're like a ripe fruit on the tree. Someone grabs it, they eat it for lunch, it's no more. So you're not secure, you're not going to last, your pride is going to be humbled, your position will be taken away. Proud drunkards will lose their authority. In contrast, God will become, verse 5, a crown for his people. 
God will rule His people. The remnant of them, verse 5. God will have a spirit of justice and of strength. In contrast to these who are corrupting justice because they're behaving drunkenly and foolishly, and these who have no strength because, let's be honest, someone who's drunk might think that they can do anything, and sometimes they do surprising things like fall down steps and don't die or whatever, but that's not really a a symptom of strength. It's just more God's providence that they don't kill themselves, right? And so they think that they're being wise, but they're being foolish, and they think that they're being strong, but they actually are not strong, In contrast to that, God is wise and will accomplish justice, and God is strong and will show forth His strength to care for His people. And then it returns to the theme of, in verses 7 and 8, why this is so important for God to step in. Verse 7, these reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. They're not stable like they think they are. They're stumbling around. Who? The priest and the prophet. Who are the people who are responsible to bring people before God, their requests, their sacrifices? The priest. Who are the ones who are responsible to tell people God's word and remind them of what God had already said? The prophets. If they're not even doing their job, how is there any way that the people are going to be going the right direction? They're not. And so God is reproving them for their pride, for their failure to fulfill the responsibilities that he's given to them. They're confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgments. How can someone do what God has called them to do as a judge when they're so blindly drunk they can't even sit up straight? How can someone say, here's the vision from God, When they're so blindly drunk, they can't even see where they're going and they fall down. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting for us. And in case that wasn't clear, verse 8. The tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. There's a picture for you. Here's a potluck. Or a feast for them. And instead of it being delicious food that there's plenty of to share, the table's covered with vomit. This is a sad and sorry state for God's people to be in. But this is what happens when there is pride and rejection of God and going your own way and ignoring all the things that He said to do. But He doesn't stop there. He continues with this idea, which is going to come up also later in chapter 28, God desires to give knowledge to His people, but they will not listen. The proud crown will be knocked off. God as the beautiful crown will be set up in their place because of how horrible of a situation they have created. But how did it get to be this way? Verse 9, To whom would He teach knowledge? And to whom would He interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast, for he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there. God's trying to communicate truth to the priests and to the prophets, but they won't listen. So the question is, who's he going to teach it to? If the people who are supposed to be the leaders, the elders, the ones who are mature, if they're not going to listen, who's God going to teach it to? Infants? Toddlers? Verse 10 is, or 11 is interesting. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. Take it in context. Here's, I think, what he's saying. You're not listening to words from those that you think that you should respect. I'm going to use people that you don't expect, and I'm going to use foreign armies to beat the lesson into you because you're not listening to it. Why do I say that? Because of what we see about in the rest of this whole section about the coming of judgment. And when I say beat the lesson into them, I I want you to understand, I'm saying they are stubbornly refusing to hear God's word. And so God is resorting to more and more extreme means. Here comes a prophet. You don't listen to him. I'm going to send another prophet. You don't listen to him. I'm going to send famine. You don't pay attention to that. 
I'm going to send raiders. You don't pay attention to that. It builds and it builds and it builds until it comes to the point of God completely carrying them out of the land into exile because they wouldn't listen to anything short of that. So as a quick aside, if God is rebuking you about some measure of sin, don't let it escalate to the point that God has to take everything away in your life before you pay attention. You say, well, would God do that? There are multiple explanations for why you might lose everything in your life. In Job's case, it was so that God would be glorified and shown to be righteous in contrast to Satan's accusations. And so God could then come alongside Job and so that we could have an example of suffering. In other cases, extreme loss is tied to specific sinful choices that people make. Someone says, I'm going to play around a little bit with adultery and their marriage falls apart. I'm going to um, not treat my children well and they lose access to their children. I'm going to be lazy at my job. They lose their job. I'm going to break some law and hope nobody catches me and they get caught and they pay the consequences of it. Sometimes someone's life spirals into complete disaster because of sinful choices that they've made. Most of us fall somewhere in the middle. God is glorifying Himself through the trials and sufferings that He brings into our lives, and there is often sin that we need to deal with at the same time. So if your first response when you face difficulty in your life is to say, I'm Job, I would caution you don't forget all the rebukes that God gave to the Israelites. Anytime something traumatic or difficult comes into our lives, we ought to take a moment, several moments, a period of time for self-reflection to say, yes, I may have been for the most part following God, but in what areas have I not? And in what areas has God arrested my attention to give me an opportunity to examine my relationship to Him and to others and to live more faithfully for Him? And so... It may be that you examine your life and you conclude there is no immediate reason that this difficulty could come into my life, should come into my life. And if that's the case, then praise God and keep following Him faithfully. But if as you examine your life, you say, you know what, I'm a lot more like the Israelites than I'm like Job. Job was making sacrifices, seeking God, praying extra for his children, all those sorts of things. And you look at your life and you say, you know what, I'm more like the Israelites. I'm living in pride. I'm living in lack of self-control, like the, the drunkenness that they have here. I'm not living in a way that accomplishes God's justice. I'm not living in a way that speaks forth God's word. Then a passage like this would call us to repent. Because if we do not, God, if you truly belong to God, God will escalate his discipline until he calls you home or you repent. I think that's pretty clear from Scripture. And if you don't know God, then you're in the perilous position of saying, I think I'm good, and your life can be in danger because in Psalms it says that the foot of the wicked will slide in due time. God sets his feet in slippery places. God casts him down. And if you think you're right with God and you're actually in peril of God's judgment, you don't know him at all, that is a terrible, deadly position to be in. So we should learn from the reproof to the Israelites. We should not stubbornly refuse the knowledge that God desires to impart to us. Verse 12 says, He who said to them, Here is rest, give rest to the weary. And he who said, Here is repose, but they would not listen. Over and over and over again, God was compassionate toward His people Israel. He said, If you follow me, I will give you rest. If you follow me, I will give you repose and relief. But they would not listen. What does this look like in our lives? We say, I wish my life was not so chaotic. And what do we do? We fill our time with watching TV and chasing after accumulation of stuff 
and getting all wrapped up in the angst of the world by, by feeding our minds with the chaos that is constantly circulating about 10 people were killed in this shooting and here's this war over here and here's all the things that are falling apart with just how ecosystems work and here's how these people are fighting and here's how this person's life is spiraling out of control. When our lives are consumed with the chaos of the world is the only thing that we're thinking about, with chasing after gathering stuff up, with filling our lives with the things that the world says will make us happy instead of the simple pleasures enjoyed in a temporary sense, always giving thanks to God and seeking after Him, we are going to be miserable and we are not going to find rest. And that's where a verse comes in where you know Jesus is lamenting over the city of Jerusalem and says, How many times would I have gathered you to me and given you rest but you would not listen. So, the next time that you go to turn on the TV or get caught up in the endless spiral of the news or start looking to say, well, if I just buy this thing, it will make me happy. Remember God's words to the people here where God says, I will give you rest. And realize you are not going to find that rest in what this world offers you. You will find rest in doing what God has called you to do. To love Him with all your heart, soul, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. To serve Him by edifying other believers. By sharing the gospel with the lost. By spending time with your family. Doing things that matter for eternity. Not seeking after all these other things. The Israelites, though, did not listen. So verse 13, The word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. So that's why I would say when it says God's going to speak to them through a foreign tongue, the foreign tongue is the invaders coming in, sweeping over their land, and bringing them to a place of repentance that they would not come to willingly God comes and knocks their feet out from under them and carries them away into captivity. So if we were to sum up this first section, it would be, God will be exalted when man's pride is humbled. Repent before your feet get knocked out from under you. The next section here uh, addresses not just Ephraim, the people of Israel, but Judah. One other quick note on Ephraim. Um, you have in the end of Genesis um, these two sons of Joseph in Genesis 48 and then 49. Ephraim is blessed because he's Joseph's son. He gets this double portion of the land, all this blessing. God says, I'm going to make him fruitful. He's going to be one of the largest of the tribes. He stands for the people of Israel, but even the faith and faithfulness of Joseph is not enough to spare his eventual descendants when they turn away from God. Why do I point that out? Sometimes we have this hope that if we raise our kids in a Christian home and teach them the right things and all those sorts of things, that God's going to kind of cut them more slack. All I would say to you on those lines is don't stop praying for your kids down the line even when they're no longer in your care because God can bring them to repentance and because all the good things that you did are not the ultimate thing that decides their standing before God. Should we try to be faithful and teach them God's word? Absolutely. Do we do that perfectly? No. Are we going to feel guilty as parents down the road that we didn't do more? I'm sure we will. But even when they are beyond our reach in terms of living in our households, we have opportunity to pray for them so that they will not experience the things that we see in this chapter. Moving on to Judah. In this discussion with Judah, not only is God the true crown when man's crown is humiliated, and God speaks to his people despite their refusal to listen, that was with Ephraim, but when it comes to Judah, God is a true cornerstone when man's refuge fails. God is a true cornerstone when man's refuge fails. In verses 14 to 15, uh, verse 15 particularly, 
there is this idea in verse 15. We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. So the leaders have made some sort of covenant or agreement that they think will be a refuge and deliver them. In contrast, verse 16 says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Man's refuge, God's cornerstone. Man's rock, God is the rock. That's the contrast here in this section. The first thing I think we see here in, in which God is a true cornerstone when man's refuge fails is that those who bargain to escape death will be caught by death. Scoffers ought to hear God's word. Verse 14, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule the people who are in Jerusalem. They ought to hear God's word. They ought to be warned by God's word. But instead they scheme. They deceive themselves that they can cheat death. We've made this covenant. The scourge will not reach us. We have made falsehood our refuge and we've concealed ourselves with deception. We're clever. We're tricky. We figured this out. We're going to be able to keep ourselves from this judgment of God. What is this covenant? I don't think in the minds of the people they made some agreement with death as a personification. I don't think they made some agreement that they think will lead to death. But Isaiah sees past the emptiness of the agreement that they've made, whether it be, and I think there's probably elements of both. Some people say, is it idolatry, worshiping a false god, or is it... um, an alliance with an ungodly nation. I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive because we see the people of Israel doing both. Often because they're worshiping false gods, they make alliances with ungodly nations because they don't want to go back to God. So I think there's probably elements of both here. But in their minds, they're thinking, well, if we worship Baal or Dagon or Molech, they can protect us. Or, on the other hand, If we make an alliance, particularly with Egypt, which is condemned in chapter 30, God says, stop doing this, they can protect us. And God says, your covenant, your agreement with false gods or with ungodly nations will not let you cheat death. In fact, it will lead to death because destruction comes to those who reject God and go their own way. So those who bargain to escape death will be caught by death. So God says, I will... Break your covenant. Verse 18. Your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. You think that you found security and refuge in your schemes to escape my judgment. The only path that you will find to escape my judgment is to turn from your sin. Not to build a bigger wall, get a better, stronger ally, or worship a bigger, stronger false god. But in their blindness, this is what they're trusting in. So what's the response supposed to be? Repent, verse 22, do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. They think that they have made adequate preparations, but verse 20 is fascinating. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket too small to wrap oneself up in. For the Lord will arise to do his work his extraordinary work. And so what is it that they should turn to instead? God is the only secure refuge from death. Verse 16, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone. At the end of it, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. God will establish as his cornerstone. Will establish his cornerstone. The ultimate fulfillment of this is in the person of Jesus Christ. We see this, for example, in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, there is this discussion with the uh, Pharisees and the scribes and those who are listening. There's the parable of the landowner. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. In Isaiah 28, the idea is the stone being refuge for God's people. Probably a closer parallel would be Psalm 62. But Jesus, in his ministry to those who proudly reject him as the leaders, who blindly failed to accomplish justice, 
and who proudly went their own way, what does he say? This rock of refuge that God is establishing for the people who believe in him will become a destruction for you. And so there's a very close parallel between the proud rulers, the drunken priests and prophets of Isaiah's day, and the proud Pharisees and Sadducees and everyone else. Because who did they think was going to help them? We've got to stay on good terms with Herod. We've got to stay on good terms with Rome. We've got to know all these things. If we just know the law enough, God will be happy with us. If we make enough alliances with those who are in political power, we will be able to protect our people. Did it work? Absolutely not. God brought a message of judgment and condemnation. And by the time it came to AD 70, the, the city of Jerusalem was scraped to the ground and the people were scattered and in captivity and many of them were dead. But did God establish his cornerstone? Absolutely. And if we want to find refuge, who do we need to turn to? Jesus as the cornerstone. In contrast to these rulers who rule the people in a terrible, unjust, and deceitful way, God's cornerstone in verse 17 will be a source of justice. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. The coming of God's cornerstone will expose the emptiness of the schemes of the rulers. It's as though here's this place that's dirty and full of dust and corruption and whatever else. The water comes and sweeps away all of it. And it finds all the hidden corners and it cleans them too. And this idea of the measuring line and the level, man has made a crooked way and God says, nope, here's the standard. Anything that doesn't meet, that doesn't meet up with it is, is wiped away. God is the only secure refuge from death. So God is a true cornerstone when man's refuge fails because those who bargain to escape death will be caught by death and that God is the only secure, secure refuge from death. We've talked before about 1 Corinthians 15 and various other passages. The same is true today. There are those who think that if we scheme, we can preserve our lives. Now, should you eat right and exercise and all those things? Probably. Can you add one moment to the scope of your life no matter what you do? No. God knows the span of your life before it even began. And so there's this fascinating interplay between God's sovereign purpose and knowing the scope of your life from beginning to end and the fact that decisions we make from our perspective have an impact on how long or how short that is and the fact that God has factored all that in already and is carrying out His purpose in our lives. And the net result of it is, what are you trusting in to deliver you from death? Are you trusting in being a good person, showing up in church every week, knowing enough Bible trivia, praying prayers, giving to the poor, whatever it might be, that you are trusting in, like the Israelites trusted in their covenant with death, false gods or ungodly nations or both, whatever you're trusting in like that, instead of in Jesus, you will not beat death. Death comes for everyone. Sometimes suddenly, sometimes when we least expect it, but it is appointed a man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Are you ready to stand before God in that day? Not on the basis of what you've done, because nothing that you and I can do will avail to turn aside God's wrath against sin. The only thing that is sufficient to have dealt with that sin is Jesus in our place. So, is that your only hope in life and death? Jesus and what he has done and the fact that God accepted his payment and that he has ascended to God and he will come as king and you want to be a part of his kingdom, if that's your hope and your trust, then you don't need to fear death. But if your trust is something else, even a seemingly good thing, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid, but now I do all these things however I feel like, or I try to generally be a nice person, but I don't really trust in Jesus as being the one thing, the one person, the object of my faith, we should have no confidence. We should fear death because it's coming for us. We see again this idea that God desires to instruct his people with wisdom, but they wouldn't listen. 
Verse 23, give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn in and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever. Because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it, he does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. The point of all this, I think, is there's a right way that should be common knowledge. They were farming people. They knew the things that were supposed to happen. Here's when you plant the crop. Here's how you harvest the crop. Here's how you prepare the ground before you plant the crop. Here's how you harvest the crop. And when you're done harvesting the crop so that it's not useless because you've run over it too many times, you don't... I mean, I guess an example for us would be you don't gather grapes with a pitchfork and you don't collect tomatoes with an axe or something like that, kind of that kind of an analogy. You need the right tool for the right job. These things should be obvious to you, but I come to instruct you and you won't even listen to obvious things. How will you listen to these far greater truths that I want to reveal to you? There's a parallel here, I think, with what the author of Hebrews says when he says, you should be teachers by this point, but you still just need the basics of milk. Now, is that a good foundation? Absolutely. Do you need to hear and know that you need to trust in Jesus and that's the foundation of your faith? Yes. But there ought to be a process of maturity where we move beyond just what is the gospel to what are all the rest of the things that God says and how do we communicate those, not just know them to ourselves. And so I would say along the lines of this by way of application, if you have been a Christian for 30 years and you never teach anybody what God has taught you, you're being like the people who know the common sense stuff but don't pay attention to it and who have moved, should have moved beyond it to maturity and God desired to use them. So don't be content just to say, yeah, I know all this stuff. Oh yeah, I know the basics. I, I'm going to heaven. Aspire to something more that God wants to do in your life and don't be foolish and childish like the people of Israel were here, of Judah were here, when there's these basic, obvious things that they keep having to be reminded of over and over and over again. The reality is, verse 29, God's wisdom is great whether we pay attention to it or not. But how much better if we pay attention to it? So God is the true ruler, not proud drunkards. God is a strong refuge when man's schemes and his refuge fail. But when God is rejected as the ruler and the refuge, God will... Purify his people until they are holy. God will purify his people until they are holy. We see this phrase in verse 29, O Ariel, woe, O Ariel, Ariel the city where David once camped. And then verse 2, I will bring distress to Ariel. She will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. There's two possible ways of rendering this word, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. The contrast is in verse 23 of chapter 29, where it says, They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and stand in awe of the God of Israel. God's people are supposed to be holy. They are supposed to be um, a strong example of God's presence among His people. And yet, because of their sin, destruction is coming, and they will not be what they ought to be. This first idea of, of feasts on schedule and bringing distress and city of lamenting and mourning. God notes their continuing feast, but brings destruction anyway. He's like, keep on doing what you're doing. You know what you're supposed to do. All right, keep doing it. There's a sarcastic tone to this. Because are the feasts and observing them going to do any good when their hearts are far from God? Absolutely not. So what does this word Ariel mean? There's two possibilities. One is the more common way that it's used, which is to mean something like Lion of God, R-E-L. Um, some people have proposed there's a very similar word that um, means altar of burning, and they think that, that there's a little bit of a play on words being made here that sort of the, 
The English word would be a homonym, a word that sounds the same, but it's a different word. Um, I do think we see that happening in the prophets. So basically, there's two senses that we could take this. One is, O Lion of God, Lion of God, where David once camped, I will bring distress to the Lion of God, and she will be like a Lion of God to me. Okay? So that's one sense that we could take it as. And the last line would be kind of like a... A, um, a sarcastic comment. Because if you're full of lamenting and mourning, you're not seeing a strong lion in all its power and glory, right? It's, it's kind of a sarcastic taking of it. If instead we should see that word translated with the very similar word, city or uh, altar of burning, then it would be, Woe, O altar of burning, altar of burning in the city where David once camped. I will bring distress to the altar of burning and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning and like an altar of burning to me. I think the second seems to fit the context better, but I'm really hesitant when people go to the extremes of what we would call amending the text and saying, this word makes more sense, so it must be the right word, right? So, the point, regardless of which of those two you take it to be, is this. If it's altar of burning, what was that associated with? God's holiness. If it's lion of Jacob, what's that associated with? Power and strength. So it's either this place that should have been holy is not holy and is being devoted to destruction, or this place that should have been strong and powerful is not strong and powerful because God has brought her low because of her rebellion. Which kind of arrives at the same sort of point. Sin has led to things being not as they ought to be. Right, And the end result is God is either going to purge the place that was supposed to be holy until it is holy or humble the place of strength until it acknowledges its weakness and turns back to him. And so I think either of those are legitimate given the context. What does God use to bring about this humbling and this purifying? Enemies attacking, verse 3, I will encamp against you, set siege works and battle towers, and you'll be brought low. God's going to humble them so far that their cry of repentance is but a whisper from the dust, verse 4. And yet, this is not the end for God's people. The enemies in turn will be destroyed by God, verse 5. The multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust, the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away. I think there's very clear echoes here of Psalm 1. What happens to the wicked? They're like the dust, the chaff that God blows away. What's God going to punish the enemies with? Thunder, earthquake, loud noise, whirlwind, tempest, and the flame of a consuming fire, verse 6. What's the net result? The multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her in her stronghold and who distress her, will be like a dream, a vision in the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams and he's eating, but when he awakes, his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams and he is drinking, but when he awakes, he is faint, his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. Just like the proud drunkards of Ephraim, and the corrupted rulers of Judah, in their pride, think that their outcome is definite and certain, so too the nations are going to be, their, their victory is going to be an empty, as empty and hollow as you, when you wake up from your dream and you say, wow, that was a great meal. Nope, it was just a dream. Wow, my thirst is satisfied. Nope, it wasn't real and I'm still desperately thirsty. Their hopes, aspirations, expectations of conquest are going to be empty and pointless because God will not cause them to stand. God will deliver his people, despite their unfaithfulness. But it doesn't stop there. Kind of building again on this theme of, I wanted to instruct the leaders, but I had to use foreign nations and children and those with stammering tongues like Moses to instruct you. And I wanted to instruct the people, but you won't even pay attention to common obvious things. How can I teach you more? That theme gets picked up again here in verses 9 through 16. God's going to conceal knowledge and make foolish man's wisdom. Verses 9 and 10. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk with not with wine. They stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. 
The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give to the one who is literate, please read this, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot read. Because they rejected God, God blinds them to the truth. That's Romans 1, right? They did not see fit to honor God, and they became futile in their speculations. The prophets and seers will be blinded. They will be unable to understand the truth. There's parallels, I think, to 1 Corinthians 1 as well, in 20 to 25, where it says God makes foolish the wisdom of this world because the wisdom of God is wiser than men and the wisdom of God and its foolishness is stronger than men. If they had trusted in God, God would continue to reveal truth to them. But because they rejected God, God made them stupid and said, you want to be stupid? Have at it. You want to be blinded? Stop seeing. You don't want to listen? Be deaf. That's perhaps one of the most terrifying things we see in Scripture when, for lack of a better phrase, God gives up on someone. We have this idea, I think, because in the New Testament we emphasize God's compassion and love and mercy and all those sorts of things, that we fail to see the reality that there comes to a point when God's mercy reaches an end, not sort of a fickle kind of a thing, I'm just fed up with you, but when God has held out His hand unceasingly to people and He says, according to my purpose and my plan, the time is finished, no more mercy, only judgment. We've seen this earlier in the book of Isaiah. There was opportunity and opportunity and opportunity, and now it's basically there's going to be destruction that will not be turned aside. Does God delay it for the sake of people like Hezekiah? Yes, but does He stop it? No. And so it is a terrifying thing to think that you can always rely on God's mercy and come to realize that if you reject Him over and over and over again, He may give you no place for repentance. Now you and I don't know when that is. And so from our perspective, we don't give up on people as long as there's life. But there is the very real possibility that if God stretches out His hand to you over and over and over again, and you refuse Him over and over and over again, that those messages of conviction and opportunities for repentance will stop coming. And God will say, I will let you go your own way. You don't want to be in that spot. What was the, one of the big issues with the people here? It was their empty worship. Verse 13, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote, Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. Why did God bring this judgment on them? Because they didn't love God. And this is one of the great burdens that I have for every last one of you who is in this church do you really love God or do you just do things that you think are the thing that you're expected to do? I do not want you to quote verses at me because you think that's what I want to hear. I do not want you to say Krishna things because you think I'm going to be impressed. And neither does God. If you don't love God and you're living in sin, deal with that. Don't try to cover it up by acting pious. And if your relationship with God isn't real and it's not that you're living in some great sin but you don't really love Him, don't fake it. God doesn't want people who just do stuff because they think their family expects it of them or that other people will say, wow, that person knows all this stuff about God. Because just like the Pharisees, Jesus said, I see your hearts outside you look really good. But your whitewashed tombs, inside you lie and cheat and murder and steal and lust and all these other sorts of things, but you think you're okay because the outside looks good. God wants to change the outside, but He's far more concerned about the heart and what's going on in here. So do you love God? Not can you answer Bible trivia questions, not can you pray long prayers with big words to impress people, not 
How much time do you spend every week in doing things that people will notice? Do you really love God? Because if you don't, sooner or later, it's going to bring you to a point of judgment just like the Israelites. Because we can't hide from God. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Paul quotes this in Romans 9, which is a whole other context we can talk about later. But we think that God is like us and we can hide from him. What do little kids do when they're playing hide and seek? Put their head under a pillow, they cover their face with their hands. I can't see you, so you can't see me. Does that work with God? Jonah ran as far away as he could, humanly possible, on the boat, and God still found him in the middle of the sea. The people in Revelation say to the cliffs and to the caves, hide us from the wrath of God to no avail. Ahab said, I'm going to cover myself with an unknown armor, and a certain man draws his bow at random and hits him with an arrow. We cannot hide from God's sight, so why do we play that game? How much better to turn to God so that we don't have to fear His gaze than to attempt foolishly to hide from it when it will not work. And yet, this passage holds out hope. After discipline, the people will see God as holy and will receive instruction. Verse 17, Is it not just a little while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field considered as a forest? On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off, who cause a person to be indicted by a word, and ensnare him who judges at the gate, and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments." But the hope is not ultimately for the rulers and those who are rejecting in this moment. Who's the hope for? The hope for is for those who would come after them who would hear God's word. Because this generation that's described here is going to end up dying and the ones right after them carried away into captivity. Some of them in captivity even in the time that Isaiah is speaking. Some of them a hundred years later. But the ones who paid attention to God's words, the ones who came back, Ezra and Nehemiah and others who came back, who listened to God's word, who loved God's law, the ones who you wouldn't have expected would find God's blessing will. And looking even further down the line to Jesus' day, who is it in the Gospels who is blessed by God's word? Who did Jesus tell John the Baptist, uh, to his disciples, to talk to John the Baptist? Go and tell him that the deaf hear, and the blind see, and the lame are made to walk, and the poor have found the word of God. And in Jesus' ministry, Isaiah's words, I think, are somewhat fulfilled. Which I think goes along with what Paul says a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 1, which is, not many mighty not many wives, not many noble according to the course of this world. There is something that blinds people in power and in wealth and in strength to the message of the gospel because they think that they don't need it. But when you come to realize that you are not strong, that you have no reason for pride, and that you cannot trust in money, This is part of the work that the Holy Spirit does to humble you and bring you to a realization that you need God above all else. God is going to bring justice by striking down those who promote injustice, verses 20 and 21. And in a world in which people are saying corrupt things, that death is life and life is evil, and that what is true is false and what's false is true, 
the idea that the ruthless will be ended and the scorner will be finished. Those who plan evil will be cut off. Those who scheme to cast people down without a cause will be finished. That brings hope. God is going to set things right. And then finally, verses 22 through 24, God is going to keep His promises. Verse 22, Thus has the Lord who redeemed Abraham. Concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed. God never abandons His people, though they often stray. What happens, verse 23? They will sanctify My name. They will... Not that they can add anything to God's name by sanctifying it or setting apart, but they will recognize that God is holy and is set apart. And in that sense, they will sanctify the Lord. They will stand in awe of the God of Israel, the Holy One of Jacob. They will see that God is holy. They will be holy themselves. They will follow Him as they ought. I think this anticipates a verse like what Paul says, that when we see Him as He is, or maybe even John We will be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. We can catch glimpses of that here and now. That ought to invigorate us to eagerly follow after God, to want to be like Him, to want to know Him more. And quite frankly, as I said earlier, not to have to go through everything that the Israelites went through to get to that point. So do you trust in your position even if you're doing a terrible job at it and dishonoring God, whatever that might be? Do you trust in your schemes to save you from death? If either of those things are true of you, if you are a proud drunkard like those in Ephraim, if you are a proud schemer like those in Judah, God will cast you down. Because God humbles the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you are one of His people, don't think that that makes you immune to the things that are in this passage because God will break your pride until you turn to Him. God doesn't want people who come to Him and say, Hey, here's what i got to offer you. God wants people who come to Him and say, I have nothing to offer you. I need everything that Jesus offers me. And if you've never come to that point, you probably have never been saved. So remember that God is to be your crown and your cornerstone. Sanctify Him. See Him as holy. Listen to Him, to His words of truth, that He might do the work in you that He wants to do, that you would know the truth and live it out, that you would be holy as your Father in Heaven is holy. Because quite honestly, that's the reason that He made you to walk this earth. Let's pray. Dear God, I pray that You would help us to learn from these truths that Isaiah proclaimed to people who would not listen. Help us to listen. Work in our hearts through Your Spirit. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.